I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon, and today we talk about pain. Just the word creates negative tingles down the spine, doesn't it? But it isn't all bad. In fact, pain is an important and positive sign to highlight issues that are going on with your body. And there isn't anyone that knows more about pain than Dr. Tim Deer. Now, you might remember Tim from the cracking episodes that we did together that explored his exploits in the Bad Water 135, the big running event. Yes, that one, 135 miles of continuous running through the brutality of Death Valley. And if you haven't listened, it is episodes that are not to be missed. It's also a great case study in which we leverage multi-sport approach to running training so that he could be ready for the demands of this crazy race. He only did three to four days of running each week so that he could be effectively equipped to go and run 135 miles through the desert. And guess what? He ended up as the fastest finisher over the age of 50 and cracking right on the door of the top 10 overall. But in addition to his athletics, Tim is also world-renowned in his expertise around the big scope of pain. You see, who is Tim? Let's talk about him on a professional side. He is the president and CEO of the Spine and Nerve Center in Charleston, West Virginia. He founded that in the early 90s, but he has become one of the prominent experts in intervention around pain in the world. He is the chairman and the founder of the American Society of Pain and Neuroscience, which is a diverse group of healthcare professionals and scientists that strive to innovate and collaborate to improve the lives of so many that are afflicted with spine, nerve, and joint disease. He knows a lot about this subject. He travels the world educating, guiding, and he has established himself as one of the premier researchers in the field. So who else could be better to come along to dig into injuries, pain, and how we should go about setting up our lens to successfully navigate both any niggles that we get, but also prevent and drive forward. You see, beyond his athletics, he's world-renowned, and so he's got both sides of the equation. And today, Tim and I, we go head to toe, literally. It's a magical discussion around body, pain, how to spot key red flags, what to do to prevent and manage your symptoms. This goes well beyond any injury prevention education. And if you are an athlete or a fitness enthusiast, this is a do not miss episode again. I think you're going to really enjoy it. But before I hand it over to Tim, I want to do a very quick squatty update. Yes, the squatty update today, we are in stressful times. But here are some of my favorite words that we've heard over the last few weeks. Happy, energized, in control, present, productive, engaged. And who said this, you ask? Purple patch athletes. Why? Well, they are embracing the performance journey and leveraging their training and the supporting habits that go around it 
so that they can create results well beyond sport. Yes, finish line and goals are really important. We love to see athletes thrive. But by taking on the journey, we want you to amplify your life. And if you're going about your training and you feel like you're just on this proverbial treadmill of pain, where you're working hard without really appreciating the journey as you go, or is your sport starting to fall into feeling like it's self-flagellation rather than actually helping you thrive in broader life? Does it feel like a second job? Is your performance journey really additive to your life? If you're feeling like this, where the sport is becoming a monkey on your back, you need to evolve. You need to change. You need to take on a different perspective, a performance perspective. And that's what we like to do. We like athletes to thrive, but not just in a sporting context, in life. Your sporting results will always emerge out of that recipe. And so this week, very simply, an invitation. Reach out to us, info at purplepatchfitness.com, and we'll have a chat. We'll see how we might work. We are not for everyone, but maybe, just maybe, we are for you. Of course, you can also go and see our programs at the website, purplepatchfitness.com. All right. One more word before we get going. Important one. I want to talk about Inside Tracker. It is my duty. I want to talk about Inside Tracker as it relates to a potential benefit to fitness enthusiasts and athletes. You see, I love the objective assessment of biomarkers. It's really good. It provides a great quantifiable insight of the data. But my primary goal as a coach and my mission is to actually create positive habit change. You see, a great coach will help you gain some perspective. Pause, get your head out of the room. And I actually believe that Inside Tracker and the insights and recommendations that we get really helps us do this. Because what we actually get to achieve is focus and focus on the right things. And that goes well beyond changing your diet or adding supplements. It's really about habit change, training, integrating it into your life. And so it's a wonderful tool if leveraged correctly. And guess what? You can leverage. You don't need to be a Purple Patch athlete. All you need to do is head to insidetracker.com slash purplepatch and you can go there. Anyone. You can use the code. You'll get 20% off everything at the store. It's Purple Patch Pro 2.0. So that's Purple Patch Pro 20. Oh, and if you do want our help interpreting results, and then you can just grab a consultation with one of the Purple Patch coaches, we'd be delighted to sit down and help you. For that, you just go to purplepatchfitness.com. Head to the services section and you can grab a consultation. All right, with that, it's time to get back to the show. We are giving Barry the week off this week. His fingers are once again a little bit chafed up from those ukulele strings. So we're not going to do word of the week, but we are going to have a super discussion with Dr. Tim Deer. I think you're going to enjoy it. Pain, all things good, bad, and ugly. It is time, ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll enjoy it for the meat and potatoes. All right, guys, it is the meat and potatoes, and I get to welcome back my good friend, Dr. Deer. Tim, welcome back. Thanks so much for being here. Matt, thanks for having me. It's certainly a pleasure to be with you again. Well, the last two times that uh, that we've had a chat on this show, we have talked about you 
and your absolutely crazy and incredible accomplishments in the endurance world. Many of the listeners will be familiar with your story, both a couple of years ago and um, and last year around the Badwater 135, an incredible story. And of course, you've been very successful. We've had a great coaching relationship, but we're not here to talk about you today. We're here to talk about a subject that I'm going to wrap up very nicely in a bow, pain. And we're going to talk about injuries and pain and your expertise that of course we introduce in the bio and we're going to anchor around the endurance athlete I think you've got so much to bring with a perspective that you don't really read or hear about you hear it I think that we read a lot about injury management and injury pain but really getting to the source of it and and I hope that this session can be really helpful for the listeners so I want to start if I can and, and, and I think that, and I'm not sure if listeners would really have considered this, but I think this is an important part of the discussion. We need to start at almost the baseline, ground zero. And uh, let me ask you this. Why as human beings do we have pain? What's the role in the body for pain? Matt, great question. Uh, pain originally was, I think, uh, part of the uh, story of humankind uh, as a warning sign to tell us we're getting too hot, too cold, too sharp, you know, too too much trauma to your body. So pain actually in its basic sense is a, is a good thing. It tells us something's going on that's problematic either from trauma, injury, or disease. And do, um, is there a, I'm going to go off tangent a little bit straight away. We've only started the conversation, but do you think that there's a challenge that many people view pain? It obviously hurts, but view it as a, a negative? Is there a relational side of things that we need to consider with pain? Well, pain is an emotional experience. So how you view it really depends on the context of how you experience it and many societal factors. We also know different parts of the brain can be activated in different people. And that determines whether it's pain and agony or suffering. And suffering then has the concepts we talked about of the epigenetics of how our society and history and genetics influence our pain suffering okay that's that's fantastic yeah that's of course that's super so so let me ask you this then when one experiences pain what's actually happening there so so i'm feeling pain and, and i guess uh, as you go on from there maybe when i think about pain i can think about it in terms of acute or chronic or intermittent so what's actually happening when we feel pain well let's define a few things for the listener we'll try to be pretty succinct about it number one when you have pain if it's coming from the peripheral nervous system which is the nervous system in your joints in your spine um, it'll, it'll actually be an a activation of different fibers of nerve that goes back to um, an area of your spinal cord called the dorsal root ganglion into the spinal cord and then synapses up to your brain into the thalamus and then to the other areas that really have pain perception. So pain is a physiological event. Again, acute pain means something that's a warning. If it lasts longer than the event, so let's say it continues six, eight, 12 weeks, then it becomes chronic pain, which is what so many people have impact their quality of life and their function. And in the endurance athlete, it's that chronic pain that often ends careers or changes someone's ability to continue in a given sport. And that's really what we're trying to address most of the time is that chronic uh, agony that leads to your dysfunction. Well, when you go into the longer term with chronic pain, it is still having the role because it is 
I know this might sound quite basic, but it is still signaling the brain, the control center, there is an issue here. Is that, is that fair enough? That's, that's pretty accurate. I mean, there are people who have some other psychological issues going on where they really can't find a physical component of it. And there's some other psychological factors, but in general, it means you've developed a degenerative change or an injury that's chronic or some sort of tissue abnormality or organ abnormality that tells your body something's going on. So I think what you said is correct most of the time. Okay. I'm going to go with a yes on that, but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but of course it's important. So I, I have to ask the question then, I think everybody listening is going to want me to ask because in many ways it's going to feel like the Holy Grail, even though there isn't the Holy Grail. I'm going to get some nuts and bolts and it's a, it's a two-parter. So I'll ask the, the first part of this. Do you have a guide on how the pain that you're experiencing is develops into a chronic issue. So what I mean by that is somebody has a, a pain and it hurts, and there's always this phase of, is this something that's going to be with me? Or is this something that's going to be okay in 24 or 48 hours? And, and all of the athletes can go, oh, I know that. It's like, is my, my hamstrings tight? Is it is this acute or is it chronic? Is there, is there a guide or, or any sort of feedback mechanism that we can rely on? Well, I think you're. I think what you're asking me is, should we run through it or should we do something else? Because exactly, <laughs> a, a injury that you know is is uh, just a, a acute inflammation of something. Many times, some brief rest and maybe a little physiotherapy, you might be back to normal pretty quickly without any real treatment other than maybe just either rest or elevation or ice. And other times, uh, the tissue becomes a chronic signaling issue and it becomes a problem for you. And so the guide would be, I think if something doesn't resolve with, uh, you know, in most cases with a, a, a short period of rest uh, and, and really maybe adapting your exercise program through your coach, then you may want to start looking at, is there something else here that should be looked at from a medical perspective? Because if you overdo something that truly is an injury, you may develop a chronic disorder. So that's the, that's the balance really, you know, is it chronic? Uh, and then that becomes a real disability to you and really changes who you are because, you know, we are in our heart endurance athletes. So once yeah. you get that, you're no longer the person you were a month ago. And, and is there a timeline on that? And what, what I mean by this is, uh, with, uh, from the pure applied side, when we when we think about sickness, when we think about someone feeling great in exercise, when we think about someone feeling bad in exercise, quite often the wait and see mechanism that I use as a coach, we, we, a lot of coaches will will uh, associate with this. We sort of have the magic seventy two hours. A lot can change in seventy two hours. A lot can evolve. Is that somewhat true as the most the most basic guideline of Hey, let it be for seventy-two hours and see what's going on, or is it is it not quite as simple as that? Well, let's let's break it down to a few really basic categories. You know, there are certain things that you need to take care of right away. You have uh, you know pressure in your chest when you're on your bike or running. You know, like some of uh, a pro, recent pro athlete had a, a major heart heart attack during a race. So if you yeah. had pressure in your chest, if you had severe headache, all those are things that could be something medically very serious. So those are things we'd want to address right away. If you get off the bike and your neck is really really painful and you're on the bike for you know a, a few hours then I think you stretch that out, apply some ice, and you wait 72 hours, and most of the time that's going to resolve. So that's category two. And then category three is 
every time you try to ride your bike, your neck kills you and the back of your head hurts and you can't turn your head or, and you're tr- driving your car the next day, you can't look around. That's becoming a chronic joint disorder that could be treated and successfully treated where you can remain a, an athlete. So three categories, really serious, not very serious and going to get better. And then a chronic nagging injury. So that's a thing. So the one you don't want to mess up is that first one where you need medical treatment today. That's I'm, I'm so glad that you talked about that because I was leading myself and the listeners down just tissue, health, ligaments, joints. It's, it's so obvious because you think about that, but it's important that that central pain, if you want to call it that, is obviously, I wasn't even thinking in those terms. So that, that's really, really helpful. Well, that, that's, that, that's our framework. And what I want to try and do, and we're going to be pretty ambitious here, is kind of go through the body and lean on your expertise with some of the really common pain that you see as athletes in your practices in, and and in your education. You obviously go all over the world and educate folks and, and try and uncover some of the components. So we're going to have to hold hands and jump off a cliff on this one a little bit, but uh, hopefully we can get some cause and effect, understand how to prevent, identify it when it bubbles up, and of course, how to manage it. And so let's... Uh, Let's go step by step, one by one, and we're going to start with, as my mum used to say, you're a right pain in the neck. So incre- incredibly painful. The reason I, incredibly common, I should say, the reason I started with this is, is you know that I work with a lot of very busy time star folk, and they often do a lot of driving, a lot of sitting in aeroplanes, a lot of desk jobs, and so often... I hear them complain around neck and shoulders that nearly always permeates down the body. And so can you just break down some of the common components that affect performance-minded endurance athletes around the neck side of stuff? Yeah, it's a very common complaint both in endurance runners and bikers because many of those people, as you say, during the day they're doing – jobs that require them to have focus and they get uh, really a loss of elasticity of their tissue, if you will. So some of the most common things you might see is something called facet joint pain, which is the joints in your neck that pivot your head. So it helps you look over your shoulders. Very important when you're on a bike in in an aero position, very important. You might notice this in your car when you're trying to look around and you can't because you can't pivot your head. So that's a very common um, problem in runners, particularly that do long distances over, you know, over 30 or 40 miles, very common in bikers over the age of about 35. Uh, So that's, that's one of the most common things we see. The other is people that have really severe myofascial pain. So the muscle itself, it attaches in the back of your head called the splenus capitis. And that can cause also headaches in the occipital region of the back of your head into your shoulders. So those are the two most common things we see in the, in the neck. The last thing I'll mention is, you know, cervical disc disease can cause pain down your arm to your fingers and associated with numbness or weakness. That's the more serious of the three, but all three can be treated successfully and really resolved in most cases without the need for surgery in most, in most athletes. And that's when, when you start at the neck, because, you know, I think many listeners would think, okay, here's, here's a, um, a doctor coming on to talk about endurance athletes. And we're going to talk about ankles and Achilles and hamstrings. And, and we start right at the top. Can you explain a little bit of the, the pathway that that's my dumb coach language to talk about this, but the pathway or the impact of someone that sits on a computer that drives 
that gets a lot of tension, a lot of pain, it it can have, I shouldn't say it does have, it, it can have a cascading effect to impact bodily function lower down, yeah? Well, absolutely. We have three uh, uh, really staff members in our physical therapy department. And one of the things they do is look at the ergonomics of someone's job, for example, standing desks, things of that nature. Because once you get that tension in the neck, what often happens is you get pain just on the inside of your shoulder blade. That's your rhomboid muscles. And you start tightening up there. Next thing you know, you're tensing up your lower back. And now you have pain from your neck all the way down to your, your buttocks. And then you get stiff and you quit moving and you're, you, know, you get tight in your hamstrings. So it can be real cascading all the way down your body. And so if you have that issue, that's one that you really can't ignore because it can affect your performance, uh, really not only just in endurance athletes, but it can really affect your daily performance, including your ability to sleep because you embed your neck hurts. So it becomes a real issue. So I think that's one of the things that really can be a, a troubling event and more troubling in most people than the ankle or the shoulder or the elbow or the wrist because it, it affects your body more than some of those other injuries we see. Yeah, and it can have a, obviously, I mean, we start impacting sleep and then your tissue and, and your overall body cannot recuperate. And so you start going into this cascading cycle. Yeah. So, so I guess if I can, I can really think about that as I'm, as I'm driving and turning my head and, and I, I feel very stiff and very tight. What, what's the, beyond the initial, okay, give it a couple of days, see what happens. If it does feel like, it is a quote problem. I'm getting headaches. I'm very, very stiff. What, what, what's the the intervention? Is it, most many people would just say I'm going to go and get a massage, for example. Is there any water to that? Well, I'm, I'm not anti-massage, and in fact, massage physical therapy and things like non-steroidals. If you have normal kidneys and stomach function, maybe all you need in some cases. But at the end of the day, you have to get on some sort of stretching program you're doing daily. And many people can't do that because their pain doesn't allow it. So the options that exist, you need, will need to see your physician, but you know, there's things like uh, ultrasound guided injections of the muscle to break up the spasm followed by deep tissue uh, released by some form of, of physical therapist. If it's persistent muscle pain, Botox, we often use that for people that have trouble with chronic neck pain, particularly bikers. We will do Botox sometimes uh, in the in the muscles of the cervical spine if they have severe spasm after riding and things of that nature. That can last three or four months at a time. If it is your joints, uh, the most really the most uh, supported treatment in the evidence would be ablation where we heat the nerve to the joint. We're not doing anything to the joint itself, but we're making it so the joint really doesn't have sensation for about a year. And during that time, you can often make progress with a therapist and then lastly if it is your disc you know and you have numbness and weakness in your arm that is the more serious of those events we talked about matt that mm -hmm. would require an mri potentially either some form of injection with physical therapy and even in some cases surgery so if you start having numbness and tingling into your arm and we'll talk about some other causes of that but if it's until ruled out you need to worry about a disc in your neck which can be more serious okay that that's terrific and i guess if we come back and, and let's make the bold assumption that it is not a disc issue, uh, because that's something a little bit different. Let's talk about prevention, daily tips, um, particularly with folks that are listening and that there are many, probably 80%, where it's like, hang on, I, I'm athletic, but I know exactly what they're talking about here. I sit at the desk, I, I get tired, my shoulders feel stiff. What, what are the very simple ABCs that, that you would say to, to get ahead of the game here? Well, one is if you have that problem, I think seeing a, a really 
well-qualified physical therapists that give you a daily stretching routine you do every day. And most endurance athletes are terrible at stretching. That's very yeah. helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. When you sleep, sometimes it's it's a pillow that you have may affect your neck. So you may want to talk to the therapist about the ergonomics of your sleep and make sure you get good rest. And then again, if you work in a job where you're in a certain position all the time, you need to change that position and you may need to look at that overall. Those are things you can do for health. Lastly, you know, there is a, a real association with smoking and cervical disease. So if you're a smoker, you may want to reconsider that because I know we don't have a lot of endurance athletes that smoke, but I do have a few endurance athlete friends that do. That has been shown to affect your neck in many cases more than any other part of your body as far as the, the musculoskeletal system goes. That, that's fat, That's fascinating. That's a, <laughs> I never would have uh, joined a connection between smoking and, uh, and cervical issues. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Well, I'm going to have to give up my roll-ups, aren't I? That's, uh, that's it. You finally persuaded me. <laughs> let, let's go down because I, you, you started to talk a little bit about this, and, and I want to go down to the shoulders because we're, we're sort of obviously cascading down the body a little bit, and I want to focus in the joints of the shoulder. Here, here come the, uh, the ears pricking up of all of the swimmers, but also throwing sports. Many are challenged. I remember a lot of my swimming buddies in college with ice bags on the shoulders, etc. Can you talk about the common complaints around shoulders? Yeah, I think the things we see most commonly among athletes in the shoulder, um, the simplest thing we see is bursitis, which is often just an inflammation of the little sac of fluid. I'm, I'm going to talk uh, layman's terms here that, you know, can be often treated by rest or uh, some form of uh, over-the-counter non-steroidal, and that will often resolve uh, very quickly on its own. And that's usually caused by some form of overuse, and you know it, it's usually very self-limited. Uh, then you have things like rotator cuff tear, where you get weakness in your shoulder, and you really have trouble pulling your arm back down, if you will. Rotator cuff is a a problem that depends on the severity can often be treated with therapy alone and not require surgical intervention. We would send that to our orthopedic colleagues if it, if it's that bad, but most people really don't need that. And then things, you know, components of that like torn labrum, you know, those sorts of things. Again, the severity is often noticed when you, when you like, for example, if you take your, your fist and you bend your elbow and put your fist backward, you can really, that's a very common way to know there's a labral tear. Okay. So, so on the shoulders, the, this is a big one, I think, for, for me when I think about uh, prevention and um, and what can athletes do. And I, I hop back to my collegiate swimming days where we were consistently doing a couple of things. I think first, overstretching from a joint injury standpoint, you know, getting our hands almost touching behind our shoulder blades and almost looking like a gymnast. But one thing that I did think was very, very helpful was band work. So across all of these rotator cuff um and, and overall joint stability. I'd, I'd love your thoughts on any preventative care that people can do. Yeah, no, I, I think there's no question. There's still a place for bands and, and things uh, where you're using basically body weight and uh, rather than heavy weights, for example. Uh, certainly strengthening the shoulder when you're injured is, is, a, is a great uh, strategy to avoid the need for surgery. Many times that's coupled with either PRP, which is an injection of your own plasma spun down for the growth factor, or steroids uh, associated with uh, continued stretching to avoid surgery. And in some people, you know, I think that it comes down to uh, that is a time where rest will often calm down an inflammation. If you've, you know, if you can swim uh, using one arm, for example, or, you know, for a few weeks, or you can do things like, uh, you know, substitute exercises there, this can often calm down. For the older athlete, though, sometimes you get bone on bone shoulder joint disease, 
And in those cases, there is a nerve in the back of your shoulder called the suprascapular nerve. And there's a nerve in the side of your shoulder called the axillary nerve. And sometimes you can do something around those nerves with a small wire just for a few months that will calm down the joint. Uh, sometimes for a year even or more. And, and that's a very low risk thing you can try. You have to find an interventional uh, spine or pain doctor who can do that. But that's a newer thing with the FDA. And I think that has great promise as well. You, you mentioned the FDA. I want to take a small tangent because we, over the last 10 years plus, as uh, as athletes that are injured are going to see their sports-minded uh, therapist or, uh, or or interventionist, etc., they hear things that they don't fully understand and often get, hang on, is this woo-woo? Is this effective? You've mentioned a couple already, PRP, um, stem cell, etc. Can you can you give me a, a couple of minutes on the the interventions beyond the classic? So let's go at one end, like there's surgery, and then there's obviously physical therapy. But some of these newer treatments that are out there, which ones are effective, or maybe better to be questioned or avoided? Yeah, no, I think evidence-based medicine is important. And, you know, when people are first injured, they often see a sports medicine doctor to do simple things like PT. And then if, if they have a surgical issue, they'll see an orthopedic surgeon. If it becomes a chronic issue, they may see an interventional anesthesiologist or, or interventional spine and nerve physician like myself. And in those chronic conditions, then the question is, what's the evidence support? There's pretty good evidence for PRP. That's when you take your own blood, you spin that down, the growth factors, you inject it back into an area. Particularly for tendonitis, that evidence is pretty good, pretty high level. Stem cells are not high level evidence. Most stem cells are, are, are really questionable. So mm-hmm. they aren't approved by in any regulatory body for use. So you have to be very cautious with stem cells. Now your own stem cells may be safer than some other donated stem cells. So but that's an area you really have to do your homework on as a patient because there's a lot of uh, things out there that are questionable. Uh, most steroid injections are very, very acceptable and evidence-based, but you, we must say that in those conditions, you don't want to get too much steroid. It can cause systemic effects on your body, so you can't have that very often. And then we mentioned Botox a moment ago. Botox for musculoskeletal disease is pretty well uh, studied and, and, and fairly safe in most people. And then I mentioned that little the little technique of putting the peripheral nerve wire in. That is a, a pretty uh, well-standard treatment for chronic shoulder pain with our severe arthritis now and really accepted by both the FDA but also accepted by most major insurance companies now as a viable treatment for someone trying to avoid a shoulder replacement. Let's say, for example, you're a 50-year-old person, 50-year-old person, you don't want your shoulder replaced. There are some new things like that that are well-studied and, and uh, well-documented. Now, again, all those things based on your own physical history and your own condition. So, you know, I may have a different opinion based on someone who's, you know, 37 and totally healthy versus a 56 year old who has multiple medical problems. So we have to look at those balances, but that's a summary of what we've talked about so far. Incredibly helpful. Re- really, really good stuff. Um, and, um, and yeah, that, 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 that's a great summary. So, so I appreciate it. Let, let's go to something with a, a lot of ball sport athletes and repetitive use niggles that occur which is the elbow and uh, and interesting this this was one that actually niggled me in uh, in my swimming I, I never had shoulder issues but uh, but occasionally we get a hot elbow as, uh, as we used to call it what what are the main causes and issues faced around the elbow and, and again any preventative options to help strengthen that joint yeah, your, your most, the most common things with the elbow is tendonitis. So people have heard of either golfer's elbow where the, the inside of your elbow hurts or tennis elbow where the outside of your elbow hurts. That's a tendon inflammation 
usually caused by something mechanical you're doing. So in swimming, you might be turning your arm wrong as you pull, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's probably the most common thing we see. And it's usually treated by either some sort of a, a band to take the pressure off the tendon, rest, physical therapy, or injection under ultrasound of around the tendon of some form of steroid to calm down the swelling. It's rarely ever surgical, usually resolves over time with either oral non-steroidal steroidal injections through ultrasound or, or some form of rest and therapy. The other common cause is bursitis, electronon bursitis. It's a, the sack of fluid in the back of your elbow. If you hit that on something and it swells, then that's, that can be somewhat troubling. You may need to have that aspirated fluid can build up in there and cause quite a bit of pain. If it gets really red and inflamed, it can be infected, and that can be a real issue for you to become serious. So you'd want to seek out treatment from a physician, have it drained, and maybe be on some form of oral antibiotic for a period of time to resolve that. And then lastly, elbow arthritis certainly does occur. Uh, if you have pain that persists over time, you may want to go to see your primary care specialist and get an x-ray of your elbow to see if maybe it could be an arthritic condition. That's a little bit less common. We don't see that quite as often, particularly in athletes. Okay, super. You, you uh, I knew this might happen today. You, you mentioned something, and it pulls me down a rabbit hole a little bit. I, I, I want to ask you about antibiotics. Um, I, I, I'm one of those folks that has uh, a, a um, allergic reaction to a couple of antibiotics, and I've always been told that certain antibiotics really degrade the integrity of tendons and ligaments. Can, can you just cover off on that quickly? I know it's out of scope or out of flow. Well, I think it's a great one. Uh, there, there are some antibiotics, and again, I, I don't want to be prescriptive on this podcast, but the things, there are certain antibiotic classes like uh, ciprofloxacin, Le- Leviquin, things like that, that are known to potentially weaken some of your tendons and ligaments. So if you're an athlete and, and you get offered some of those antibiotics, you may want to ask if it's in those class of drugs. If it is in that class of drugs, you may want to ask, is there any substitutes? Because certainly there's been some tendon ruptures associated with some of those antibiotics and documented in the literature. So great question. And if you're allergic to a lot of other antibiotics, it may be your only choice, but certainly we've seen people who've gone on some of those antibiotics and they come in and you, we've skipped this, but it's been between your shoulder and your elbow, but they come in with a ball of muscle in the, between their elbow and their shoulder, and that's a biceps tendon rupture. And your bicep balls up into a ball. And that's very common among people over the age of 50 to occur and very common in athletes. So, and that can be certainly potentially increase your risk by some of those oral antibiotics that can cause weakness in those tendons. Mm, okay, very interesting. Let, let, let's go on to something that's a common issue for cyclists. So a lot of the folks listening will enjoy this one, which is uh, weakness and, and numbness around the wrists and hands. Uh, I think that almost every cyclist has experienced this uh, to some degree. And they all say, oh, I've got carpal tunnel. I've got the owner nerve, so, so expand on that. Well, yeah, you hit the two on the head. So I mentioned earlier, if you get pain from your neck down to your arm, it may be your disc in your neck, but more commonly among athletes, it's compression of a nerve. The two most common nerves to compress among bikers, for example, the ulnar nerve, you'd go numb in your last two fingers, your ring finger and your little finger, and you may be weak in those fingers as well. And that's caused by compression of the nerve where the blood flow to the nerve is, is, is really hampered, usually by a long bike ride or a long race, particularly if you're gripping the handlebars tightly or you're not in a position where took in a road bike, for example, more so than a tri bike where you may have your arms laid comfortably uh, on the uh, tri handles, for example. That's usually treated by time. It usually goes away on its own, but you may not have to bike for a little while. You may have to let that nerve recover, and it may take several weeks to recover. If it becomes very painful, you could go on certain medications for nerve irritation, or you could even have an injection under ultrasound guidance of the ulnar nerve with some steroid to calm down the inflammation. Most patients don't need that. 
And then if, you're, if the middle of your hand goes numb into your thumb and your middle finger, uh, that's often the median nerve, which is the same thing as caused by carpal tunnel. But in that athlete, it's usually not carpal tunnel. It's usually inflammation of that nerve from holding your wrist in a tight position, either from biking or maybe from running. If you have your hands in a certain tense position, holding water bottles, for example. And again, that usually goes away on its own. Uh, in most cases, you may have some weakness of your hands, though. So you may be a little cautious holding onto your handlebars if you're going around a, a, a technical course, for example. And again, that's this, these are times where the most common thing for those, both those conditions is rest. And that's hard to hard to, to summon some time. But you could ride a trainer without using your hands to grip the bars by just you know, using your legs only and things of that nature. But that's almost always self-limited, rarely becomes a problem. Last thing I'll mention is you can have a palsy though that develops where the nerve is permanently injured, and that may require either some uh, interventional treatment with procedures like injections or little little peripheral nerve implants, or it could require surgery to decompress the nerve. So, but those are much much less common. And and I'll contribute to this one a little bit. That what one of the most common things we see is folks that have either a very poor bike fit that ends up weighting down, and added to that, which is often not thought of but critical is really bad posture on the bike locked elbows broken wrists as i call them so hands fading out and weighted on the edge of the bars really gripping the handlebars tightly that that's bad for you as a bike rider it stops the bike self-correcting you can't stand you can't corner correctly all of the cascade of other things that we've talked about in other shows but also tends to be people then that are complaining i can't believe it my hands are numb so, well, as I look at you, it looks like they'd go numb, <laughs> particularly an hour into this. So, um, so that's super. Let, let, let's dive into the uh, the big one for me, probably the most common one. I'm, I'm going to call this the the power plant uh, because whether serious athletes, parents, desk bound executives, cyclists going to love this. I'm going to summarize it as everything under the bib shorts. What I mean by this is low back, hips, buttocks, everything down there, cascading down to hamstrings and glutes. I said, that is the area. I'm tight. I'm sore. I've got a niggle, et cetera. Let, let, let's over to you, Tim, I guess is the best way to say this. Let's talk about this. Yeah, you can spend, you know, we spend most of our time seeing, uh, you know, athletes that have back pain. That's the most common thing we see in runners. Most common thing we see in triathletes, most common things we see in bikers. So I think you hit it on the head. All those things we've talked about so far happen, but they don't happen to, with the frequency of the low back. So let's talk about what it could be. It, again, it can be musculoskeletal. And I love what you said about posture. Many times that is a postural issue, the way you're running, the way you're sitting on your bike, maybe the way you're doing things in that nature. And the treatment for that's often some really good core work from a physical therapist and some change in your posture and, and a lot of stretching of your hamstrings because your hamstrings themselves can actually make your back hurt because they're so tight. So that's probably far and away the most common thing we see. And that's very fixable with very little intervention. So, you know, that's number one. Number two, again, facetogenic joint, joint disease. We talked about the neck where you have trouble turning your head. Well, for your back, if you have pain when you sweep or mop 
or try to, to, to do any type of uh, weed eater, that's a real tip off that it's your lumbar facet joints, which is one of the most common causes of pain in people over 35. And those joints actually when inflamed makes it hard for you to stand up straight. So if you start to run, you may have pain in your back when you're finished because the joint took a beating and it's very inflamed. Sometimes it goes as far as to get fluid in those joints, which is a real issue. And once you get fluid in the joint, it won't go away on its own. That's going to require some form of intervention. The most common intervention in most people is something called radiofrequency ablation, where the joints are heated with a computer once a year. And that's when you have arthritic joints, not when you just have an inflamed joint from stepping in a hole, for example. Mm-hmm. But that that's diagnosed by x-ray. So you have an x-ray, you've, you've been treated for the muscle, it didn't resolve, you have pain with extending your back or rotating your back, you get an x-ray and there's joint disease, then that's often treated by a, a process where eventually you have the joints heated. And that's a very low risk procedure done in a physician's office under x-ray guidance or fluoroscope usually. Um, so that's a, that's a low back. The last thing in the low back is the multifidus muscle is a muscle that's kind of holds your back up and that gets weak sometimes in athletes as their core gets weak. So you don't use your core properly. You don't stand properly. You have, you have poor form. You gain some weight. Uh, you get a little older. All those things make your core bad and you have things like multifidus, erector spinae and psoas muscle weakness that causes deeper muscle pain that you can't resolve with physical therapy. And then again, there's ways to treat that with minor interventions to rehabilitate the muscle. And sometimes that goes as far as implanting a little computer under your skin that goes directly to the nerve, to the muscle. And that, that can be used 20 minutes a day, twice a day. And that's, that's really an FDA-approved level one type of device that is used in those who don't resolve with conservative treatment who don't need back surgery. That's someone who mm-hmm. still don't need back surgery. So that's a, that's a run at the back. And then the most common things we can get to the other parts of uh, under the, the big pants, if you want, going forward. Any questions well, about that? Yeah, well, I mean, and I guess around that prevention, uh, we, we talked about obviously the physical therapy and the exercises that come with it. But I mean, you're coached by me. You know how important we put the big banner of strength and conditioning, but not just throwing heavy weights around. A lot of the core stability, and we come back to getting a lot of the postural work that we do. It's a massive investment that's going to yield a lot from from really helping athletes. And it's still so so commonly ignored, yeah? Well, I think one of the major fundamentals of Purple Patch is the core. And if people spend more time with the core, they'll have a whole lot less back problems. So there's no question the investment you make and the exercise of the core that you teach and your other coaches teach uh, with you, Matt, it really will reduce the back risk you have of the lumbar spine. So I'm a big believer in it. As you know, I, I follow those, uh, those tenets myself and it's really helped my performance. I, I, I want to ask a question, which is I, I hear from athletes who have gone to an expert in parenthesis and they said he or she told me that my glutes aren't firing. I always hear that. And I thought, what, are you falling down like a sack of potatoes? Because don't you, your glutes actually have to actively fire, understand. But I think a, a, the most common thing I hear from athletes is I need to strengthen my glutes. That's what I'm told. Can, can you talk about that a little bit and how well, that works? Yeah, some of the language you hear from physical therapists, uh, you know, are confusing to people. My glutes aren't firing, my pelvis is out of whack or crooked, you exactly. know, all these things, right? And, and, and so it's, it's really kind of controversial, some of that terminology, but I will tell you what we see commonly. Number one, you know, the sacroiliac joint underlies your glutes, if you will, and that's the joint that hooks your spine to your pelvis. Several things make that diseased. Any type of injury to your knee or ankle when you start limping, that joint gets diseased and you have pain in your butt. 
Uh, the way you set, the way you move, often the pain's worse with setting with SI joint disease or when you get up in the morning or get out of a car, all those things can be quite painful. And then you can go run 10 miles and feel pretty good. So it's really confusing because why does my butt kill me when I get out of my, just set my chair and watch TV, but I could just ran 10 miles. When that happens, the muscles around that often get really weak and often, you know, you get weakness in that whole area. So that can be some of the things we're talking about. That joint's often diseased by abnormal gait. Back surgery can cause more weight transfer to that joint. If you've been pregnant, that when you have when you have pregnancy, the, the hormones make the joint, the, the ligaments weaken as the pelvis opens for childbirth. So a lot of women who have had childbirth get pain in the sacroiliac joint. And again, that's a that's a joint that's often treated with either either injection, ablation, or some of the newer procedures where they're fixated with some minor procedure that you can make, keep the joint from moving. So that's probably the most common thing we see in the buttock region. Uh, the muscles there, the piriformis muscle, the gluteus muscles, those can have a lot of spasm. There's some very specific uh, therapy for those to stretch those out daily. Once you develop that, if you don't do that on a daily basis, you can't stretch it once a week. Once you've been diagnosed with piriformis or gluteal muscle dysfunction, you're going to have to get a strengthening program and a stretching program you do daily. And there's no surgery for that. There's no major procedure for that. that that is purely a mechanical coaching issue from either the coaches who teach things like core work or from the physical therapist who can teach you how to, to keep that relaxed. So that's that's a problem there. Okay. Yeah. It, it involves will, consistency, coaching, and, uh, and follow through to, uh, to fix it. Let, let me ask you one more thing on this uh, because this is another thing that I hear quite a bit with folks that have have been, quote, diagnosed with weak glutes or challenges in the glutes, they often get flagged with hamstring issues. And the, the diagnosis is the hamstring has been overworked because that is the secondary muscle group to go into their activity. So in other words, your back is tight, your glutes are weak, you can't fire your glutes, the hamstring is therefore called into action, they're not strong enough, it gets injured. True, truth or false? Well, again, a lot of things you're quoting are what physical therapists say, and many of whom are friends of mine and quite good, but th there's always a, another side of the, of the coin, if you will. So, you know, if you think about the hip girdle, which is that, that whole area, there's several things can be going on. And a lot of times it's the tightness in the hamstring that leads to injuries uh, above the hamstring. So I, I'm a big believer that flexibility of your hamstring is one of the major causes of not getting injured in your glutes and your SI joint and other things. So, you know, weakness, they're really tied together. So what came first, the chicken or the egg? So you really need to, to strengthen your quadriceps, lengthen your hamstrings by stretching, and then also strengthen your hamstrings as well. But it's more important to have a loose hamstring than a strong hamstring. Uh, because it, the tightness in the hamstring is what causes a lot of injuries above it. The other thing we need to think about, people that get pain in, the, in their butt often tell people they have hip pain. That's not your hip. Your hip is your groin. That's, if you get pain in your groin, that can be hip disease or hip injury. So if you start having a lot of groin pain, you need to really, really think that this be a hip injury of some sort. It may, again, seek therapy or go out and see your physician and get an x-ray of your hip. If the outside of your hip hurts when you're laying in bed at night, that's often bursitis. Very common in runners who don't stress their iliotibial band very well. So they get bursitis in their hip. And, and they really, the most common thing people usually notice is when they stand up and they feel that little bump on the sides of their hip when they push on it, that hurts. And they wake up at night when they turn over in bed because the, the bursa is so swollen, it causes inflammation. So hip bursitis, hip intraarticular hip injury or disease is groin pain. Bursitis is lateral hip and the butt pain is usually the joint. And then that muscle dysfunction you're talking about 
you know, that's where you come back to a combination of strength and stretch. You need both. If you do only one of either of the glutes and the hamstrings, you're going to get injured. So you have to have both strong, but also you have to work on, on probably the flexibility of both those muscle groups because they do trigger each other. And if either one's exceptionally weak, you're going to, you're going to transfer the, the, the force of the body to the other muscle group and you're going to have an injury. So, so here's another question that, uh, that I hadn't planned on asking, but you, you bubbled up there. Stretching. A lot of talk around static stretching versus dynamic stretching, if you want to call that, or what people might label mobility work. Where do you stand on that side of thing? Yeah, I think, again, loosening the muscle first before you go into the stretching component of it, doing more uh, dynamic stretching is probably a better idea in most cases because, you know, if you have a, a cold muscle that you stretch out, sometimes you may have some microfiber tears. So I think most people will, will do better if they, they, they actually warm the muscle before they go into a lot of stretching of the muscle. Great. That's super. So, so I've got a, a couple more questions and one, this is the question I'm most excited to ask you. I've got to say, this is a very common uh, scenario, I think for, for athletes that I see, particularly those that I would label repeat offenders with injuries. So I'd love your perspective on this athlete gets picket hamstring, Achilles, whatever it is, they get a niggle, they get an injury and they stop all activity. So let's imagine that a runner has an Achilles injury and they stop everything. They rest and it heals. They begin again and the hamstring goes. I'm assuming here that what's happening is a level of deconditioning with the absolute static recovery. So what, what I'd love is your perspective and maybe leading you down a path to give me an answer that I want to hear. So I hope I'm not doing this. But how important is it to find a way to maintain some form of stress on the body globally while recovering from injuries? Well, that's well, yeah, you and I are going to agree. But let me tell you a scenario where we may not agree. And I think you'll, you will once you hear what I'm going to say. I've had a couple of friends have femur stress fractures, which is a pretty oh, yeah. serious injury, right? So that's, yeah. a, that's a big bone in your thigh, if you will. And, you know, they, they've decided not to rest and they've had total fractures or they've decided to have a hip pinning where someone's put a pin through that stress fracture, which sometimes is a disaster. And the treatment for a, a stress fracture of a large bone like the tibia or, or femur is rest. And you really yeah. have to rest that limb totally. And you will get atrophy and you will, you, you will have to rebuild yourself later. I had a friend that recently had a patellar fracture falling when she was running and she had to go into straight leg cast for six weeks and let that patella heal. And now she's got an atrophied leg that's stiff as a board, right? So, so, you know, but those are times where you really have no choice, but if it's a bone issue, you have to rest it. And you may have to rest your whole body because you may not be able to do something without moving that part of your body. And, 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 and you know, remember, there's sometimes athletes who take a few months off uh, after the season and they're still Olympic class athletes. So a few months off will set you back, but it's, you can recover from that. You know, you're an amateur athlete probably if you listen to this podcast, so it's okay. So that's one group of people. That's a small group, right? So let's talk about the other group. Achilles injuries are horrible. Uh, plantar fasciitis can be horrible when the bottom of your foot's inflamed. All those things can be quite painful. And, and if you quit doing anything, which a lot of people do, then when they come back, they have two reasons they get injured. One is their mechanics are off. And so they don't run the same way or bike the same way. But secondly, they get weaker and they decompensate and they don't have the same body chemistry they had of their muscle groups. And next thing you know, they've got a left hip injury because they had a right foot injury. And now they get a trouble with their right knee and it becomes a, a, a just a, a 
a terrible time of multiple injuries. And I've got two triathlete friends that have had that happen to him three or four times because they took it the time totally off. So as you know, and, and, and you and I've talked about this on, on different occasions, if you have an injury of some part of your lower extremity, you can do things to compensate like pool running. You can do things, uh, you know, where you might be an elliptical where you couldn't ride the bike, but you can still do an elliptical or maybe you can bike and you couldn't run. So you need to look at the mechanism of what's going on. And you need to find ways to fire the muscle groups around that anyway. And that will do two things for you. Number one, it'll keep you from going crazy because a lot of athletes who do nothing, uh, it is hard mm-hmm. psychologically. But two is it'll keep you from getting injured when you come back from recovery. And, and many times, uh, for example, I had an injury a few years ago. I did all my running in the pool. And I went down to Chattanooga and had a great Ironman in Chattanooga. I didn't run outside one time for 12 weeks because I couldn't. I was injured. But I let it heal. And then I actually went out and ran a, a good marathon in Chattanooga during Ironman Chattanooga. So, but that was a time where I never used that injured part of my body in any way, shape, or form. But I used the other muscle groups around it. And, and I think that that goes back to what we're talking about, that you know, you, if you have a good coach who can help you through those injuries by keeping you active, you're going to do much better in the long run. And you may get injured less often in other body parts. I think that last point is important. I, I realize I'm saying this as a coach, but many people get injured and they throw their toys out the cot and they say, I've got to quit or stop. And it's that's exactly when you need a coach who's been there before, that's got professional guidance that can help you get the right care and also build the framework. I, I will say your first point uh, when you talked about femur stress fractures, I mean, there's, there's a very personal one for me there with Sarah Piampiano, uh, one of my favorite professional athletes I've ever coached. And she had exactly that. And that was a, a a massive challenge for her. It was also the best thing that happened to her in the big scheme of her career because the false rest enabled her to get her head out of the room a little bit and almost recreate herself. And, and it, it is a wonderful story that almost deserves its own show of how to navigate the false rest to actually convert it into an opportunity over the course of two years, not over the course of two months. And... Um, and she coming out of that after 18 months and, and into the two years, that is when she broke into world class. And so if anyone is listening right now with a with a stress fracture of forced rest, you have to convert to opportunity, recreate, re-strengthen. And then in any of those injuries that you said, the one thing I'll add, Tim, is it's the it's the same as people that come back, they finish a season. They decondition with a little bit of postseason and they start too quickly. Injuries occur. The ramp is too fast. Coming back from injury, there's the sympathy phase where you've got to rest a little bit. And then there's the, oh, it actually feels better. And that's when people get injured so often, I experience. And so there's that that immediate side. So it's incredibly helpful. I, I, I want to come up to the mind a little bit just to finish the show. I want to talk, talk two quick questions. I think this is fascinating stuff. I think I know your answer to this one. Pain. I want to come back. It is the subject of this show. You often hear folks saying a person's got a different, quote, threshold of pain. Do you think there's anything to this? And and, and I guess what, what determines different thresholds of pain, the ability to handle and navigate pain? Well, I think uh, certainly there's the extremes. People are born with no pain fibers. They usually die very young because they get injured and can't tell. They have fractures and burn themselves and all. So that's, you don't want that. And then there's Mm -hmm. people, there's people who are hyperalgesic. So for example, if you've been put on a high dose of opioids, it makes you more sensitive to pain. 
and things bother you more than others. So there's, there's two extremes. Um, but everything else, I think, is, is really based on a complex, um, you know, epigenetic situation. For example, they've done a few studies on this looking at brain scans. So if you grew up in a hard environment and you actually had maybe your parents were not around and you had to get through different situations and you had some childhood traumas mentally, there's some evidence you might be able to be a better uh, long distance suffering endurance athlete. And they think that part of your brain, which may be your medial thalamus, for example, where suffering is mediated, the anterior cingulate in that area, it may fire differently than someone who had a really good childhood and didn't have any suffering and is used to being comfortable. And, you know, that, that, that's not a general rule. Not everyone who suffered during childhood or, or adolescence are great endurance athletes. And not everyone who had a posh uh, upbringing uh, in LA, Beverly Hills is, is a terrible endurance athlete, but there is something to it. I mean, so yeah. obviously we, we've called that a chip on the shoulder, but really it's probably not a chip on your shoulder. It's probably more, something change in your brain psychologically with that suffering. So that's one group. And then, you know, there's other people that really just uh, don't have the attention span to suffer. And what I mean by that is they don't have, they have, they have such a, they remember all the suffering they did and they don't want to go through that again. I think there is some evidence that if you can compartmentalize your suffering and, you know, that may again be different parts of the brain being activated, you can go back to a different situation. You can run a 50 miler in the Keys and you can go do 135 in Badwater and you can do Leadville in the mountains and your body doesn't really remember that pain. And, you know, you may argue that that same thing happens sometimes. My wife has four children. I'm not sure she ever thought about the previous childbirth with the next childbirth. So there's some compartmentalization of suffering that some people have as well. So those are two, two examples of, of what may be different about those who can suffer and those who can't. And this there, my, my last question, we talked about the brain and the conditioning of the brain in many ways. It's, it's obviously powerful. I mean, we understand with fatigue and, um, and the central governor theory and components of that. Do you think there is a best for folks that are listening that might think, I'm not sure how tough I am or how good I am at managing pain. And what is my ability to suffer? Do you think that there is a, a an overall blanket knowing that it's uh, it's very individualized this, but is there a best mindset when you approach pain? In other words, we talked about it's a positive thing. It's a signal but when someone is, now I'm going to talk about pain, less about injury, but I'm going to talk about, is it, is it better to ignore it, focus and absorb and accept it, something to battle and fight against when you're in, and, and who I'm asking the question here is Tim, the doctor, and Tim, the athlete, who is a complete nut job, by the way. So <laughs> I'm going to ask you, what's the best thing? Do you accept and absorb? Or do you battle and fight? So uh, I think there's two answers here. I'm glad you you quantified that. Uh, the physician will tell you that when you have pain, you have to go back and re-examine the questions we began with. Could it be my heart? Could it be my brain? Could it be something serious, right? And if it could be, you need to stop, seek medical attention. So that that's the physician side. Uh, you may be harming yourself. So if you have chronic pain every time you run in, the, in your groin, you could be having a real is issue with your hip. You probably need to get checked out. So that's that part. Uh, the athlete side of me says you embrace it. You 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 would learn to to endure it, embrace it. For example, when you're at mile ninety and you're suffering, you look at the person beside you and say, you know, that poor guy's suffering. I'm going to crush that dude. And that's really <laughs> how you have to think about it. And if and if you let it get inside your head, you're going to quit. And you know, I think uh, I like to take I like to take the suffering personally when I'm in an Ironman or in a long a long uh, ultra run or 
doing the Boston Marathon and you're mile 26 and you're trying to get a PR, you know, that's when I actually take that. I, I, I take it. I embrace it. I think about those who, you know, are suffering and can't do what I'm doing. They, they, they're being, you know, they're in a war in Ukraine, which is a terrible thing, or they're, you know, they, they, they actually got paralyzed in a trauma. So I take that pain and say, I w- those guys wish they could be here with me right now doing what I'm doing. And I take yeah. it as energy. So I actually, the athlete side of me says, you know, heck no, I'm going to, I'm going to embrace that pain. I'm going to, I'm going to absorb it. I'm going to say I can out suffer everyone else that day. And, and in many days you can out suffer everyone else. And some days you can't and that day you end up in the medical tent with an IV and won't be looking too good. But uh, so there's two different answers and they're definitely different. And, uh, and one last thing I'll say, they have studied this pretty carefully and they do think that the long and, you know, the, the training for ultras really doesn't affect your heart and, and cause any type of early death. That is that has been studied really extensively. So if you're training for ultra running, ultra marathoning, um, you know, long distance triathlon, you probably aren't damaging yourself based on the most recent evidence. The day of the event though, and this goes back to suffering. That's why we're bringing this up. I think it's an important way to close the day of the event. If you push yourself past the limit, you could be doing some permanent damage. So I, I think when you're embracing that suffering at mile 100 of a long run, there is a chance you could be harming yourself that day. You probably didn't harm yourself with all those hours of training, but I think you have to be a little bit more careful and listen to your body a little bit if you start having morning signs on the day of the event. When you get into a, a difficult area, it may be time to DNF sometimes, which all of us hate to do and don't want to do. I think that is a wonderful way to end, and, uh, and I absolutely agree. Uh, I, I think that the only thing I'll add as a coach, it is, is very, very rare with the highest performing athletes that I've had the opportunity to work with. I don't think I've ever met anyone who their relationship with pain and suffering has been one where they've tried to suppress it or beat it. Nearly always it's absorbing it. And in fact, quite often, this is this is one that I heard from Steve Magnus, a good friend of mine, a great running coach that said, actually embracing it as a signal that you're doing something special. So shifting the relationship and and saying, okay, this is a signal that I'm really pushing my body to do something that I haven't done before. And that that is what it takes to actually be great, whatever your own personal brand of greatness is. But Tim, I can't tell you how how interesting that was and how useful. So thank you so, so much. I've I've never had a a conversation around pain and and niggles and injuries in this way. So it, it was tremendously interesting and helpful but on top of that i know that we've got another episode to do here i know that we've got a whole another chapter of this that we'll do over the coming weeks or or months but i do want to thank you for coming on i always love chatting to you and and i love your insights and it's fantastic to hear the professional side of tim not just the athletic stuff and tough tim that came out today so thank you so much for coming on the show well coach nixon thanks for having me it's my pleasure and i look forward to future conversations and i wish everyone great sports out there Be safe, everyone. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, 
You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers.